Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today we'll chat with paleontologist Tim James. This episode was such a joy to record. Tim and I have been following each other on social media for like three years. So he'll see posts that I have of like natural history museums and other historical museums, learning and reading about history and, you know, just exploring my curiosity overall. And then on his, I see him, he lives out in South Dakota. And so he's out in the Badlands. He's just out in the American West going on expeditions and posting uh, photos of fossils and everything. It's just so cool. I just love it. He happened to be in Chicago, so so we met up, and you can tell by the audio. The audio, uh, the audio is going to be kind of loud. There's a lot of city city life noises you're going to hear: buses, traffic, horns, uh, and it's interesting that we're talking about paleontology during this time too. But it was such a great conversation, and and I'm just I'm so proud to share this with you. I I, I had so much fun. You can follow Tim at DinoGuy1997. Let's begin. So I'm joined by Tim James, and Tim and I have been friends on Instagram for like maybe three years or so. Yeah, something like that. What's exciting to me, so I go to, I go to museums, natural history museums, and if you, you follow the things that I do, uh, you know that already. And when I'm in the museums, I'm always thinking, like, what, it, what is it like for people out discovering this stuff and, and cleaning it? And what, that's, that's got to be so cool just to be out west because the American West is known for a lot of fossils and paleontology. And so then I live vicariously through through Tim here, and it's it's awesome. So he was in Chicago, he's in Chicago now, and we met up. So here he is. So hi, yeah, I'm Tim. Uh, that was a really nice introduction, Rich. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan uh-huh. of yours as well, man. So I really appreciate the chance to get to be on this podcast. I think you bring up a really good point there. Working with paleontology is a really unique thing. I really don't think there's any other job that's like it, except for maybe working as an archaeologist. Uh, And I do that as well. The cool thing about working as a paleontologist is there's never a dull day. It's always something interesting and it's always an adventure. And sometimes it's an adventure when you don't want it to be. There's a lot of times where I find myself working out in the field, digging up a dinosaur. Uh, you know, like, uh, for example, I was working with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in um, Grand Staircase National Monument in uh, Utah. That was in 2016. During that time, it was actually the largest continuous monument in the 48 states, the lower 48. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, what we were doing is we were excavating this big ceratopsian. It was a new species of frilled okay. dinosaur, kind of like triceratops. Uh-huh. And uh, we were digging this thing up, and all of these crazy storms came in. And we had to recede back to our camp, and we had to like literally run while the Badlands are melting all around us. Whoa. You know, we're running up and down, people are sliding, you know. It's getting wild and flash flooding out there. Out there in the Badlands where we find fossils, flash flooding can be a really crazy thing. So, you know, we run back and we get back into camp and, uh, you know, there's these big gullies right uh, right on either side of the camp. 
and we didn't really think about it before we set our camp up, which was probably a big mistake on our part, because when we woke up in the morning, the camp had become an island, so we had to sit in the rain and drink Kahlua at 8 a.m. <laughs> and just try to warm up, huddle Dude. together, and tell old stories, but... Uh, you know, that's the best way I could describe what it's like to work in the field in paleontology. Every day is different. You'll go through field sessions. Like, for example, uh, Tiktaalik was this, you know, really early ancestor of, uh, you know, reptiles uh, and amphibians back okay. in uh, Nova Scotia. You know, the guy going out to dig up this fossil always knew it had to be somewhere because he had studied the geology of that era. Now, I'm a Cenozoic paleontologist, so I don't know too much about way back when. But I can tell you the cool thing about describe that... What, describe Cenozoic for people that don't know what that is. Oh, so the Cenozoic is any time after the extinction of, of the dinosaurs. So I study everything from ancient mammoths to gompotheres, which we'll talk about a little later to, uh, you know, terror birds and, uh, you know, the Oreodons of the Eocene period. You know, yes. all of that is real big in South Dakota. While Tim's talking about stories in the field, we are kind of now in the field. We are downtown Chicago, and and so there's there's going to be trucks and cars and traffic and horns. So this is, this is the urban field right here. Oh, yeah, we're sitting right across from uh, the Bean looking at all this really pretty... Uh, covid barricades and everything so hope you guys enjoy the ambiance uh you know anthropologically speaking this is a pretty fascinating time in american history so we should all be lucky to live it <laughs> i guess we understand now why uh the saying may you live in interesting times is a curse that's certainly true oh. now what does your daily life look like <laughs> Well, you know, I uh, I put my pants on just like everybody else. Oh, but, so you uh, do? Oh, yeah, you know, sometimes I don't. It's it's nice to go to the museum a little okay. free-balling, but uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't actually do that. That's not <laughs> professional. But, um, you know, what I do is I wake up, um, have a cup of coffee, you know, walk out, drive through the Black Hills. Sometimes I get stopped by Buffalo on my way to work, driving through Wind Cave National Park. That's pretty fun. Uh, Ridge sees that on my Instagram, but... I'll drive in and, uh, you know, I'll get to Hot Springs, South Dakota, which is a wonderful little small town, and then I'll head into the museum, and uh, usually I'll start by uh, going through different stuff that has been donated to the museum. Uh, most recently, I actually just accessioned some saber-toothed cat skulls okay. from the uh, White River Formation, from the Arna Ranch of the White River. Uh, they were actually discovered by Frank Garcia, who is my boss at the... Uh, World Fossil Finders Museum. So you're uh, at the, what museum are you at? I'm at the World Fossil Finders Museum in uh, Hot Springs, South Dakota. It's actually a brand new museum. We're only a few months old. We opened on June 20th of all dates. So we're brand new, but we're hoping to get into paleontology, you know, with a fighting force. We got the dream team working for us. Riley so you're, Lawson. you're part of the dream team and, and I, so what what do you do specifically it seems like you do a bunch of stuff so I do a lot for the museum my title is I'm the collections manager and lead natural history researcher but I do other things like okay. I facilitate partnerships for the museum uh, whether it be with media or whether it be with uh, different institutions like right now uh, we're discussing um, some partnerships with some in institutions in Canada. I can't say which ones, but okay. that may be pretty cool. Uh, and also some ones in Texas as well. Shout out to the Whiteside Museum and uh, Holly Simon. If you guys ha aren't following her on Instagram, you should definitely check it out. Okay. I think I do follow her. 
Yeah, she's the Whiteside uh, Museum. Where is that? Yeah, so that's in uh, Seymour, Texas. I was actually lucky enough to visit in uh, December on my way to the Ozarks, and uh, she actually opened up the museum for me at like 9 p.m. when I got into really? town and gave me a personal tour. Oh man, that's yeah. cool. They're doing wonderful work down there. Um, they're also a brand new institution like ours, and uh, what they're doing is a lot of work in the Permian and in the Cenozoic period. They dug up some really fascinating animals. So, so far, they actually dug up some really cool Dimetrodon. So, I don't know if you know what a Dimetrodon is. Yeah, it's something that looks like a dinosaur, but it's not. Yeah, so a lot it's of people... a big sail. Exactly, yeah. So, just like Spinosaurus, a lot of people get really confused that Dimetrodon is a dinosaur. It's actually kind of yeah. a joke among paleontologists. Well, that's not a dinosaur. That's a Permian reptile. But actually, what it is is a synapsid, which is really cool because that means we're related to it. Now, uh, synapsid is a uh, mammal-like reptile, okay. and uh, Dimetrodon was fascinating because it was one of the you first probably... dominant uh, apex predators in North America, uh, well, in Pangaea at the time. Okay. So, you know, finding these things is just super cool, but it requires really talented prep skills to actually work through a Dimetrodon skeleton. Because the crazy thing about Dimetrodon is you would think that the spikes would be straight, but they're not. They're curved. They're curved, really? kind of like a bent antenna or okay. a bent wire. They're curved all the way up. And whether that's the taphonomic process, which is how fossils are preserved and how what happens every after an animal dies, whether it be by that or whether it be by the actual biological structure of the animal, I don't know. But it's uh, it's a really difficult thing to prep, and I think you know they deserve a lot of credit for the work they've done yeah. there. They're also working with Dr. Bob Bakker, if you guys have ever heard of him. So, what led you on this path to to where you are now? Like, what as a kid, like, like how did you, what pulled you in this direction? So that's actually a really interesting question, and I appreciate uh, you asking that. So, you know, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I actually grew up in the neighborhood in Albuquerque called the War Zone. Um, that War is zone. the actual neighborhood in the city. It's now called the International District, but you know, when I was growing up there, it was called the War Zone. My father died when I was very young, and the only place I'd actually ever seen my father walk, because he was in a wheelchair my whole life, was at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History. So in okay. a lot of ways, the Natural History Museum became my second home. So, like a lot of kids would spend at the park with their friends, I was constantly at the museum talking to scientists. You know, really? I attended my first lecture at the museum and even asked a question and stayed awake the whole time when I was eight. <laughs> uh, not eight, when I was six, you know. And I went to museum camp every summer there. And, you know, I think this just goes to show the importance of uh, science education, you know, in the inner city. But. I got really into paleontology, uh, and in a lot of ways, reading about paleontology is what helped me through the foster care process and all of the troubles I went through. And, okay. you know, when I was, uh, I dropped out of high school when I was in ninth grade, and I went to a military school. It was okay. called the New Mexico Youth Challenge Academy, and uh, if anybody is looking for solutions for kids who are struggling, the National Guard challenge academy program is for you i highly recommend it but i was at this military school and they just shaved all of my hair off and you know we had gone through the first two weeks of what they call acclimation period acclimation period kind of like where they're screaming at you and you're up 
you know, 16 hour d days running and yeah. doing push ups and basically welcome to the program. And uh, there was this time where after acclimation had ended and we all became cadets, they all lined us up and boom, 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 they asked us what each of us wanted to be. And they gave us no time to answer. Really? Because they wanted an honest answer. And, you know, as a high school dropout who had no prospects of ever, you know, really, you know, wanting to achieve this, I didn't even realize that this was still a passion of mine at the time. I said paleontology. And when I look at the reason why I became this, a lot of the time I put it there. So after that, I graduated from that school and I started going to New Mexico Military Institute. I actually had dreams of becoming an officer in the army. Okay. And uh, that's something that didn't quite work out because I took a cultural anthropology class at New Mexico Military Institute and it really caught my interest and really rekindled that flame. And after that, I moved to Albuquerque again and I started studying at the University of New Mexico and at Central New Mexico Community College. And I studied archaeology and I studied evolutionary anthropology and archaeological theory. And on my 18th birthday, you know, I was 16 when I graduated from my military school. On my 18th birthday, I was there on an excavation digging up a great kiva in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, with San Juan College so after that it was just kind of it, it moved very quickly so I went from doing that archaeological excavation to going back to New Mexico uh, going back to Albuquerque and doing work with the Maxwell Museum of Anthropology where I did a lot of collections work with archaeological material yeah. really cool stuff like uh, you know Southwest pottery you know Chacoan Valley stuff Chaco Canyon material you know, I was doing all this, but something didn't quite seem right. I still knew there was something else I wanted to study. Okay. And so I started sending out applications, and I must have sent out 500 applications to every natural history museum and every, really? every part of the country, you know, even other countries, emailing people, you know, and I got one call back, and that was to the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopolis. And really? So, yeah. Yeah, Thermopolis, uh, Wyoming. So, and you sent, sent like 500 out. Yeah, and this uh, is the only one. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, a whole lot. Yeah, paleontology is a notorious job market, and you really have to want it if you want to be in that field. Uh, but anyway, I got accepted out to that internship, and I can tell you that was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Why is that? Oh yeah. So I get from Albuquerque, and I'm driving in my beater car with my mom, who's helping me get up there. And we're driving through Utah, and we stop at the Utah Museum of Natural History. And then we're driving. It's on the University of Utah campus, right? Yeah. If y'all haven't been there, I highly recommend visiting if it's open right now. I have no idea if it's open. Yeah. But uh, the Wall of Ceratopsians is uh, actually uh, heavily influenced by one of my mentors. I, uh, you know, I was driving up to Thermopolis, and we passed through the Wind Cave. Uh, not the Wind Cave. The, uh, you know, Wind Canyon in, uh, in Riverton, Wyoming. And I, it just blew my mind and I knew I was on the right track as soon as I saw every single geologic layer of all <laughs> of my fame, uh, all of the things I'd read about in those books and seen in documentaries as a kid, just there uh, for the first time. And so we roll up to the really? Wyoming Dinosaur Center, yeah, into this beautiful small town. It's got hot springs running right through it and, and the Bighorn River is going right through this town. We cross the Bighorn River and we drive up to this, you know, big corrugated metal building. And my mom's all like, what's this? 
And so I walk inside and there's a Supersaurus, which is a giant sauropod long-necked dinosaur just staring me right in the face. And from there, I was hooked. Uh, you know, I that same day, I was digging up Camarasaurus fossils with the museum just five minutes away, driving out there. You know, they have sites right at their Natural History Museum. So they dig it up right there. Right there. So, yeah, it's really cool. So that was such a unique place. So they taught me how to do things like prepare fossils using microscribes. They taught me how to do things like excavate fossils and quarry all around them and trench around and prospect for fossils, which is a funny way of saying hiking up and down badlands, more like sliding up and down badlands yeah. and looking for fossils eroding out of the hill. So they're teaching me all of these wonderful skills and a shout out to Bill Wall for being the first paleontologist to train me. He's a paleontologist at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center. He's got an ichthyosaur named after him, which is a marine reptile. Okay. from uh, the Jurassic of um, the UK. So he's got, he's got a dinosaur named after him. Well, I, it's not actually a dinosaur. It did live at the same time okay. as a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, it's a common misconception. It's an ichthyosaur, and a lot of people think when they hear sore, it's dinosaur, but of course. not necessarily a dinosaur. It's actually a marine reptile. It kind of looks like a dolphin, almost, with this really, really slender snout and kind of fat body, almost like a fish. Okay. It's a very strange creature. But uh, I was digging up Camarasaurus fossils, and as soon as I found my first dinosaur... Camarasaurus, for those that don't know, it's, it's a large, large sauropod. Camarasaurus is a huge dinosaur. They actually have a Camarasaurus on its hind legs rearing up outside of the Field Museum. I think there's a mask on it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I've seen it with, like, uh, Broncos jer Not Broncos. Uh, Bears jerseys. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. Chicago. I apologize. <laughs> so how, how do we all benefit from the work by people like you? So, I had trouble answering this question when I was younger, but I bet I think the best way to describe the benefit, uh, the, you know, understanding of paleontology and its benefits to the community is understanding uh, that paleontology is studying mass extinction events. Okay. So, uh, you know, previous to the, you know, current mass extinction event that we're living in and experiencing here in downtown Chicago, there was several other mass extinction events in Earth's history. And I think paleontology matters now more than ever because understanding how mass extinction events have occurred in the past will better uh, improve our understanding of how to move past and you know mitigate the damage of the current situation that we're in and understand what you know was actually happening. But in a lot of ways, there's, that's just a tiny portion of it. You know, way more important to me than even understanding climate change is the power paleontology has to grip the imaginations of the public that's, wherever that's where I come you in, are. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly, and Rich is a great example of that. You know, yeah. paleontologists has this almost uh, paleontology has this almost supernatural power to draw us into these different ages you know when I walk into a museum and I work with a fossil in a way I feel like I'm time traveling yeah absolutely yeah. yeah or going to a different universe or a different world an alien planet because you you think about you know all these different paleo environments that have existed within where we are today yeah. you know they find totally monsters from the uh, before even the Permian period right here in Chicago. Yeah. 
it, it's wild. I, I like to think about all of the grand stories that played out before us, and I think it oh, can absolutely. actually help us be more humble to understand where we are and how we fit into that grand story as well. You would know, uh, appreciate my YouTube browsing history. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I would, yeah. <laughs> Lots of PBS eons, I hope. Uh, Those guys are great. Smithsonian Channel's got some good ones. Yeah, uh, they yeah, have some really good, good ones. ones. Uh, Royal Terrell has some good videos on there. Piggybacking off of what you just said, in the Field Museum, the Field Museum is probably my favorite spot in Chicago. And so every time I go there, I go straight to the Evolving Planet. Like, first thing we got to do, whoever I'm with, we got to go to the Evolving Planet. And I take a walk through there, and in this, this large room with all these big fossils, there's a window that looks over the skyline. So you can see the skyline of Chicago from this window in the evolving planet. So I'm, I, I look out into the world and see all these tall buildings and human progress and busyness in a way, and I'm surrounded by all these dead things. And it's like, wow, what a, what a like juxtaposition. What, you know, what a, it's so interesting. And is it a juxtaposition or is it another a, chapter in that story? I guess so. That's a good question. That's a good question. When I'm going through this exhibit, it just, like you were saying, it just gets my imagination going and triggers it. And so I'm wondering, like, I have these ideas of what going on an expedition is like. So I imagine you guys are just out in the middle of nowhere and you're just flying down the highway. You're, like, listening to metal music, smoking cigarettes and just, like... Just oh, yeah. hanging out like friends, and I mean, you're doing all the work and stuff, but just seems like a, a great hang. It's a lot of fun, and uh, if you ever come out into the field with me, which I'm gonna have to have you come Dude, dig with I, me in oh, South Dakota, we're gonna set that up right after we're done here, and we'll have to have another podcast after that. Oh, for sure. But, um, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. I love how you say smoking cigarettes and flying down the highway <laughs> and listening to metal because that's pretty much what I do. But uh, throw in a little bit of old school gangster rap in there, you know. I, I, yeah. I throw in a little system of a down, maybe a little ministry, maybe a little Iggy Pop, and throw in a little bit of uh, Biggie Smalls because we're in Chicago, right? So what are some crazy stories of being out in the field? Oh, man, I got some zingers. So uh, here's another one from my time in uh, Grand Staircase National Monument in Utah. So we were in the monument for about eight weeks uh okay. and i was the uh, one who was there the longest so i had got to the uh, museum in september and i did not leave grand staircase until october wow. so we were digging there quite a while and uh there was this uh guy who came uh from uh you know he came from san diego and he's a really great guy you know worked at actually one of the same museums i've worked at uh well not worked at but uh, they're colleagues of mine in Hot Springs at the Mammoth site. Shout out to Justin Wilkins. And uh, he, uh, he had actually managed to get lost. And what had happened is, uh, you know, he's a very, uh, very tall man. He's about, you know, maybe a little under 300 pounds and about 6'7". Very large, awesome guy, the exact kind of guy you want in the field with you. <laughs> but he had been out prospecting for fossils and he had fallen down this gully. You know, this 40-foot drop, you know, in between oh, these two badlands, and he had shattered his ankle. So we did Dang. not realize this because we were chiseling out a Tyrannosaur, a Teratophonius, and using rock saws like they cut 
cement oh, with yeah. and using you know hammers and chisels to try to get this thing out of the ground and mind you it's like 100 degrees outside and everybody's you know completely exposed to the elements so we don't find out that he's not at camp and not prospecting until we get back to camp and then we're like oh my gosh he's not showing up is he okay what's going on and so we all hop in the bed of the truck and they're like anybody who wants to come search jump in this truck now because this train's moving out of the station <laughs> so i ran and i jumped in the bed of the truck this flatbed owned by the denver museum uh -huh. of natural natural science and joe Serdic is in there and he's doing all that cool work in madagascar now you know he's at the denver museum and we're all going as fast as we can to try to find this dude before the sun goes down and it's like seven and sunsets at oh, 8 20. Yeah. so we get out into the field and we start running and yelling where are you oh my gosh where are you and we're running on the top of these ridges and we're risking falling ourselves and we hear this echo from way down there and we wow. see him down in the ground all hurt and uh, all of us are just like oh my gosh we're glad we found you because this is grand staircase and it's a possibility you need a search party out there but thank god that we found him wow and uh you know then it's the process of getting this dude out. So are we going to call a helicopter from Salt Lake City or are we going to figure this out? <laughs> so the great thing about paleontologists is they really like to um, improvise. It's all improvisation okay. in the field. And, uh, you know, what we use for dinosaurs is these big stretchers. Because if yeah. you get six, per uh, six people holding a stretcher and you switch them out, You'll be able to carry out a hundred pound, uh, a multi hundred pound dinosaur bone out of pretty much anywhere. So we're like, he's no bigger than a giant jacket, yeah. which is a term we have for a fossil that's been put in a plaster coat. Right. Um, well, he's no bigger, he's no different than a giant jacket. So we'll just <laughs> have to pull him out of the field. And that was easier. <laughs> pull, him pull him out of the field. So that was easier said than done. So we went back to the camp and everybody's drinking and relaxing and they've all been working outside for like 12 hours or something in the sun doing hard manual labor like chiseling and quarrying yeah. out a dinosaur bone, a dinosaur skeleton. And uh, we're all like, put the beers down or chug them. We need you. <laughs> it's going to be a long night. <laughs> and he's like three miles out. And in Badlands, that's a long way. Oh, oh man. In Chicago, that's a long way. And, yeah. and um, we, uh, we put this dude on a stretcher, and then each one of us rotated, and we had to have 12 people holding that stretcher. Wow. And it took 24 hours. That's more, that's more hours. than like a casket. Yeah. <laughs> when you're taking someone on a casket. Well, you know what? I'm glad that we didn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, we we uh, we managed to get him out, and then Joe actually drove this dude back to Denver with no sleep. I was so impressed. Like this guy's okay. a legend, straight up legend. But <laughs> if you want a crazy field story, that's a crazy field so story. So what is it like? Because I'm sure, I mean, you've learned about like OC Marsh and you know like Elmer Riggs and Edward Drinker Cope, like all those guys going out west with not. The equipment that you guys probably have now well they got the same stuff i have because i don't have the money for the other stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's so wild like how how far technology has come and, and it's crazy how, how much of it is like how different is it now compared to back then 
so I would describe the science right now as experiencing a renaissance. We have all these new methods of extracting data from a single bone that we never had before. Okay. So now we can cut thin, se uh, thin sections of bones and look at them under a microscope and see the ontogeny, which is a fancy way of saying the life cycle of this animal. All its, gr its, it's birth like through its death. Okay. Yeah. And uh, now we can do that. Uh, a lot of my work actually involves stable isotopic analysis. So today what we can do is we can take some teeth, and I've done this with, uh, you know, Mayan human teeth from uh, the uh, archaic period to um, small rodent teeth from the Cenozoic. Uh, and we can actually grind up the teeth and put it through a centrifuge and then send it to what's called a uh, mass spectrometer, which will separate the different isotopes which within that tooth and then it'll give me something called a mass spectrograph which will give me information about that animal's diet that animal's uh you know climate conditions and the water where that animal lives it's really wow. wild yeah wow we have so many different methods but paleontology it's important to understand that it's an infantile science it's very young it's less than 200 years old. Yeah. And because of that, we are always, always, always rearranging and changing the what we call phylogenies, which is a fancy way of saying the braided evolutionary stream that is, you know, the evolutionary stream. Isn't that interesting how it's how it's still that that young of a science and you know, back it in is, the yeah. like 1700s they had like uh, like cabinets of curiosities, curiosity mm -hmm. cabinets. Yeah, the old naturalists, uh, Thomas Jefferson, actually, uh, when I was in uh, Philadelphia at the Ben Franklin Museum, I actually uh, saw a mastodon tooth that Ben Franklin had had in his collection that was excavated in his personal effects. So there's, uh, you know, there's nothing more American than paleontology. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is extremely young. So it started off with those naturalists. But I think the contributions that are forgotten uh, about paleontology is actually the contributions uh, to understanding what fossils were before Europeans actually even came out west, which is something that's not really commonly talked about. So one of the things I've learned uh, doing archaeology and paleontology and working with people from Pine Ridge Re Reservation, the Ogallala Lakota Sioux, okay. um, is I've learned about some of the oral history stories about really? yeah it's fascinating so one of my favorite stories that i think falls into um paleontology's purview is the story about how the black hills were formed there was a race uh c creator wanted uh humans and the buffalo the two-legged and the four-legged to race because the humans did not respect the buffalo which of course has always been a common trend yes among yes, human has. history and um you know, Creator wanted us to uh, race against these buffalo and not us, the ancestors of these indigenous people, which we're all humans. But basically what, uh, what happened was, you know, these giant, huge buffalo and in their stories, they talk about huge, giant horns on these buffalo and giant sizes of these buffalo. And wow. we, in the fossil record, we can actually look and see exactly what those buffalo were. They're what we call bison ladder fronds, which you can actually see at your local natural history museum. So are they bigger than the bison we see? They're about three times bigger than what? the bison we see, yeah. <laughs> Almost a yard between the horns. Wow. Absolutely wild. Huge megafauna. 
And the story is these buffalo have to race the four-leggeds, uh, the two-leggeds all around the Black Hills to create it. And this, this race is what forms them up into the hills. And so the main buffalo starts running and running and running. The biggest, baddest, biggest, hugest buffalo you can imagine starts running around the hills and then a magpie goes into its ear and says, keep running, keep running quicker. They're right behind you, keep running quicker. And the buffalo does this until the buffalo starts to stumble and starts to fall. And so the magpie then goes and flies through. And because of that, the buffalo was lost, the big buffalo, and then the humans and the buffalo could no longer talk. There's that story, and then there's actually another story that is at, that we have an exhibit on at my Natural History Museum that I think is pertinent to pier shale mosasaurs in uh, South Dakota. So there's a story about a creature called Unchecula. And, and mosasaurs, they're, they're yeah. in the water. Yeah, mosasaurs lived in the western interior seaway in the uh, Cretaceous and Jurassic period. They were really cool. They're uh, relatives of snakes. Um, they went extinct when the dinosaurs went extinct. But they're huge marine reptiles. If you ever saw Jurassic World, that's the giant thing in the tank that eats the dinosaur at the end. That's a mosasaur. What do you think about Jurassic World making it like way bigger than it was? And just like in dinosaurs in general in the movies? So I'm not the biggest fan of that. Um, I also don't like the fact that they chose to put in a hybrid dinosaur. No, I don't I, like that either. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. We've found so many awesome dinosaurs since then, and I feel like those dinosaurs deserve their credence. I don't think Jurassic World is all bad because I think anything that gets kids interested in paleontology, or adults for that matter, interested in paleontology, is awesome. Uh, and I can understand why they wanted to make these things bigger, but you know, I feel like it would have been just as, uh, just as mine, uh, just as breathtaking to put a Tylosaurus there, which is the largest Mosasaur. I mean, this thing's not small. It's about, it's larger than any living, you know, uh, reptile today. So, you know, it, it's this giant creature. So I'm not the biggest fan of that, but I also think it's all right. It's easily fixed with a tour at the Natural History Museum. <laughs> it's easily fixed, yeah. What about, um... So you have the American West, which is a great area for paleontology, Patagonia in South America, um, Gobi Desert in China. Are there other areas in, in the world that are great for paleontology? Yes, there is. And uh, one of my personal favorite areas is the Karoo Basin in uh, South Africa. So um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the people I've met at conferences over the years, and uh, I've actually became really good friends with the people at... Uh, the University of the Witzwaterstrand in Johannesburg. And what they do is they actually study the Permian-Triassic boundary in the Karoo Basin. And they find these things called Gorgonopsids, which are these huge mammal-like reptiles. And you can, actually, you can actually go see South African Gorgonopsids at the Smithsonian Institution right now in the new exhibit. Well, I don't know right now, but yeah, whenever the museum's open, you can see those. I highly recommend it. But they dig up the this fascinating period of history that before uh you know that area was discovered we had no idea where that boundary was because there's no outcrop of these formations in the united states or in okay. the west so what they do is they go out there and they study how uh you know it transitioned in one of earth's worst mass extinction events into the age of the dinosaurs so that is the very first page 
in the story of the dinosaurs, and that's why I think it is a really fascinating area. Oh, what's what's the coolest thing you've you've found oh. on an expedition? It's a really tough question because I've found a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, just recently finding uh, opium pipes digging up uh, 1870s Chi uh, Chinatown in Deadwood was pretty fascinating. Really? Oh yeah. Still had residue on it. I found a full whiskey bottle too. You can see that video on my Instagram. But uh, I guess the coolest thing, and man, it's so hard to choose one because so much stuff has been awesome. Uh, like I, I give a few honorable mentions to the articulated and ankylosaur tail club that we found in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah. Um, I dug that up with Mike Getty, uh, who's now deceased. But um, that was really cool. But still to this day, I think my personal favorite find was a three foot long extinct carnivorous giant squid from the Western Interior Seaway. It was wow. a squid pen. So the body of the squid, the cartilage had fossilized and it was three foot long. We thought it was petrified wood when we first found it. And then we found what may have been part of an ink sack and then we realized that yeah. this was something else. And so we excavated this, and uh, that was the first other ever excavation that I ever led myself with a uh, you know, good friend of mine, Ethan Jennings, who also led that expedition. In fact, he was the one who discovered that site and set up everything with the rancher. So I was more of just you know, his ass assistant almost at that time. We had worked together at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center. But yeah, you know, we hiked out yeah. there and dug this thing up, and put it on a jacket and then you know tied it up to a horse and I rode the horse out of there and we put it on a put it on a in the back of my Hyundai Santa Fe and then we drove it to the School of Mines and Technology well the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology Museum of Geology is that's a mouthful and we uh, <laughs> donated it to them and they actually prepared it it was uh, on a famous uh, Pierre Shale Ranch is actually uh, uh, Kenny Brown's Pierre Shale Ranch, and he actually has a Mosasaur named after him. Uh, really? Mosasaurus Ken Browneye. Yeah. Wow. So uh, that was probably my favorite find. A giant carnivorous squid from an ocean that's no longer there. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so I've been to a number of natural history museums. Uh, American Natural History in New York, uh, Field Museum here, Denver, uh, Mammoth Hot Springs, uh, Dinosaur National Monuments, um, 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 what's the, uh, the University of Utah, that one, Natural History. Do you have, what's in your opinion, the best natural history museum in America? Mm. Wow, that's a tough question. Now I have to say, my natural history museum is my personal favorite. Of course. The World Fossil Finders Museum is pretty great. Y'all should all come visit. But uh, my personal favorite natural history museum will have to be the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science in Albuquerque. I just love the way the museum is spread out um, where you can walk through the entire geological history of the earth from the Archean period when it was being formed to our current age, you know, all the way through. I just love the way that museum is designed. You know, I grew up at that museum. I worked at that museum in the lab and as an educator. And, you know, I have friends who work at that museum. And 
their mounts are just so dynamic. They have a really cool uh, stand cast in there. They have the Bistahi Verser, which is a uh, Tyrannosaur from the San Juan Basin of New Mexico, uh, from the Cretaceous, the uh, the 70 million years ago. Wow. From the Laramidian Coastway, which is uh, the continent that all of the dinosaurs that are really famous come from, because North America was split into two continents during the age of the dinosaurs. It was Laramidia and Appalachia. So Pistaliverser comes from the beach of Laramidia. So we have that. We have a Polycosaur, which is an early Permian reptile that ate plants, and it's articulated, which is laid out the way the animal would have uh, been, you know, mounted almost, like you would have seen at a museum, laid out like that in stone. Uh, we have the Ghost Ranch Coelophysis block that has uh, evidence of cannibalism within dinosaurs. Really? Yeah. Um, it is just a really fascinating place and that's just the stuff on display the stuff in collections will blow your mind they have uh diplodocus vertebra formerly known as seismosaurus uh it's no longer a valid taxa uh but they have a diplodocus vertebra that's bigger than me now granted i'm five six it's not too hard to get taller <laughs> than me but still it's it's pretty awesome they have a uh you know 10 foot slab that is just amphibian skulls from the Triassic. Just one after the other, just hundreds really? of them, yeah. They have, you know, early Gompathir, baby Gompathir, you know, it's an early elephant. You know, they have, they have pretty much anything you could want or need, and they have the best early preserved uh, elephant material in the country uh, from the Espanola Basin of New Mexico. Wow. Yeah, you should go down to Albuquerque and visit the museum and get yourself a Chicharrones burrito at El Modelo. <laughs> What's New Mexico like? I've I've driven through it mm. on a Greyhound bus, and the bus broke down, and I spent three hours on the side of a road. And I, I remember <laughs> just being so disappointed because I always thought, like, in the desert, everything's always warm and, and sunny, <laughs> and, and there was snow on the ground, and it was cold, and I just hated it. What, yeah. So what's New Mexico, the rest of New Mexico like? I, I feel like the native uh, culture is so vibrant and, and still present. So New Mexico, I will oh, my heart will always be in Albuquerque and always be in New Mexico because New Mexico is such a culturally uh, fascinating place from the rest of the country and I really don't think it gets the credit it deserves. Very underestimate, uh, very underappreciated, uh, I think. New Mexico has the highest Native American population in the nation. It is the only state outside of Hawaii that has a non-white majority population. It's very, very diverse. The food there is to die for. If you guys have never had hatch green chilies, I highly recommend it. New Mexican food is like nothing else you've ever tried. Uh, it's a mix of indigenous Puebloan food traditions and early Spanish influence. So you have a lot of chilies, a lot of corn, beans, and rice, a lot of pork, a lot of tamales, you know. In Albuquerque, it's completely, you know, normal for a lady to approach you and uh, somebody's abuelita or something to approach you uh, in a Walmart parking lot and sell tamales to you. And I buy them every time because they're the best food you can get. You know, uh, Albuquerque has such a uh, youthful and exuberant vibe about it. Uh, you have so many different artists and musicians and, you know, people who work in film there. You know, they make more movies in New Mexico than they do in Los Angeles. 
Do Albuquerque, they? yeah. Uh, Netflix has is headquartered in Albuquerque. Uh, NBC Universal is building. Uh, Netflix built a billion dollar studio there. NBC wow, Universal. I didn't even know that. Yeah, they built all this stuff, you know. And so Albuquerque is really getting discovered. Santa Fe is really cool there. They have what's Meow what's Wolf. cooler, Santa Fe or Albuquerque? Um, Albuquerque because Santa Fe is a little hoity-toity for my taste. <laughs> uh, but Santa Fe is really cool because Santa Fe is the oldest capital in the United States, and it was built in the 1600s. I believe it was in 1606 Santa Fe wow. was founded. And uh, you can actually go and walk the original plaza and see the uh, you know, Adobe architecture in that, that's been there since the 1600s. And wow. for history nerds like ourselves, they actually, if you go to the Palace of the Governors, you can see excavations. Uh, you can see all the areas they've excavated and all the different layers. And in the United States, you don't really get that. That's more common in Europe, but that's what I really recommend about Santa Fe. Uh, it's artistically gorgeous in New Mexico. I mean, that's why you have people like George O'Keefe out there coming from Taos and uh -huh. coming from Ghost Ranch. And, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is from there. All sorts of really amazing people come out of the city of Albuquerque. I mean, Jim Morrison uh, actually saw a car crash on the Native American reservation in New Mexico when his father was stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base. And that's when he believed a Native American had entered his soul, which I don't know if I believe that, but it influenced his wow. art, and I love his art. So The Doors, dude, I yeah, love the Doors. Yeah, I love the Doors, too, man. They, Albuquerque has that Doors history. I think Ray Manzarek actually lives in Santa Fe. So. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, you, you've been in, uh, like, a couple films, or you've been doing some stuff, right? Uh, so, yeah, I dabbled a little bit in the New Mexico film industry. The great thing about paleontology is it's a difficult job market, so you're not always working. Um, so at the time, I was going to the University of New Mexico and studying evolutionary anthropology uh, and working in the Smith Lab as a research volunteer and doing heavy-duty research on the uh, last 22,000 years. I can't really talk about that yet. <laughs> um, that is still ongoing. Uh, that's a partnership with the UT, uh, University of Texas, Austin, by the way. So that's a cool one. Okay. But uh, I got into the New Mexico film industry uh, from my friend uh, Emily Seiler, who goes by Emmy Rain. She was, uh, she was an actress on Too Old to Die Young, which was a uh, film, uh, which was a Amazon original television show that was filmed in Albuquerque. And uh, it was directed by the same guy who made Drive. So just, it was really cool, and she introduced me to the right people, and so I started, uh, I started doing background work. My first background project was amazing. I had just flown in from Denver on an excavation, and the next day, I'm going on set uh, to News of the World, which I cannot tell you guys too much about, but it's a Western with Tom Hanks. It's based on a book, and it's going to be uh, premiering on December 25th. Uh, I can't tell I can't tell you guys anymore, <laughs> but December 25th is the busiest film day of the year, so it's going to be good. I can tell you that. Uh, I worked on the Fox show Deputy, which is now canceled, <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. I worked on that show a lot, and uh, I was actually contacted by AMC and by Netflix to uh, be an archaeologist on Better Call Saul, season five, episode five of Better Call Saul. And uh, so what I actually did is they told me, hey, so we want you to come on and do a scene with us. Uh, we want you to brush off an artifact and we want you 
to, you know, be in the background while he's digging, but my job was also to go and make sure everything was correct. Right. Yeah, so I was also working as a, uh, kind of like somebody who was contracted out to uh, get authenticity on set. Right. Um, so that was a lot of fun. I got to talk to Bob Odenkirk about Gompathiers, and I'm sure, as you guys already know, they're my favorite crazy <laughs> elephants. They have four tusks. They're wild. They're like duck-billed elephants. They're intense, but... That was a really fun time, uh, and then from all of those different opportunities, uh, I was actually called in to work as a prop assistant on a movie that's still in post-production right now, uh, and it's a Lifetime film. Nice. So, uh, I wish I could tell you the story about my first day on set, but we'll have to wait if that ever premieres. Premieres, yeah. So, uh, but that was a lot of fun. Um, I got to work with Jeffrey Welsh, which has done all sorts of stuff with Cosmos, and my job was a prop assistant and I was hired because I know how to work with museum material yeah. and working as a prop assistant or a prop master is actually not too different than working as a collections manager because you're always managing the uh, you know transference and use of different objects and the cool thing about working in props is you actually might work might make something or put something on camera that then in turn gets to be put in a museum. So for me, I nerd out that. about that. <laughs> wow! What is, so is that is it Gompathir? A Gompathir, yeah. A Gompathir. Is that your favorite extinct animal? Yeah, it is. It, it, it certainly is. So a Gompathir is the earliest relative. A Gompatherium productum is the earliest relative of proboscideans in North America that we know of. Now, we can trace our evolutionary chain all the way back to Egypt uh, with an animal named Phyomia. And that's, you know, we're talking 30 million years old at this point, right? But Gompatheres, they came into North America. And what I really like about them is Gompatherium productum persisted for 7 million years in the Espanola Basin. Just think about that. We've been around for 300,000 years at the, at the highest estimate that we have today. And Gompatherium productum survived. This elephant survived for seven million years. The normal geologic lifespan for a mammal is three million years. Really? And it's because of the success of this animal that we had things like the Columbian mammoth and Stegomastodon. That's the biggest, right? Columbian uh, mammoth? Actually, the biggest one is Paleoloxodon. It comes from Europe. It's actually even bigger than a Calicathere, which is an ancestor of horses. It's the largest land mammal that ever lived. It's a huge, massive elephant. Uh, Which slash, one is this? What is uh, this? Paleoloxodon. This is the first time I'm hearing about this. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an unsung hero, but it comes from areas like uh, the Baltic area. So you, okay. you find them in the Czech Republic and in... Uh, those other countries are escaping my mind. I'm not a geographer. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> You find them in that region of the world. So, so you're pretty close to uh, Mammoth Hot Springs. I am, yeah. So Mammoth Hot Springs is about two minutes away from my museum. Describe, We're right around yeah, the corner. Yeah, describe Mammoth Hot Springs for people. Oh, the Mammoth Hot Springs is a really cool place. So what happened is uh, there was these hot springs with this mud. And uh, what happened is because these hot springs were warm, all of this green grass would grow all around it. All these green grass and lush, lush different types of plants that elephants, like mammoths, like to eat. But you can't go there because an animal as heavy as a mammoth 
just starts to fall into the mud and yeah. sink down into it. And it's kind of like the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles that way. All of the elephants, all of the mammoths found at the mammoth site have all been young bull mammoths, young adults. And the reason why they're all young bull mammoths is because elephant herds kick out the young bulls who become aggressive and reach sexual maturity until they can relax and they have to go to a different, uh, you know, different group. And because they don't, ha these young bulls don't have their mothers around them to guide them away from the hot springs with the nice green grass in the middle of the ice age winter. These, these mammoths come and eat the grass and then slide in and become perfectly preserved. And the best thing about the mammoth hot springs is you can see the head of a mammoth and you can see every single bone all the way to the end of the tail laid out in the ground, not even excavated out. It's all sitting there and it's amazing. It's a huge bone bed. So what you're saying is that in mammals, without their mothers, guys are stupid and they uh, make mistakes. Well, I mean, in my own life, I can tell you that. <laughs> Without mother's guidance, uh, you're in tough, tough mud there. Hey, but everybody's got to learn. You got to sink <laughs> or swim, literally. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. It's, it's, it's so wild that it's just this massive, so it's this site that a building is erected around it and volunteers and people are work daily mm -hmm. and they said they still have like 50 years to like dig dig it all up yeah it's gonna take them a really long time to excavate all of it and uh i don't know if they'll ever actually be able to do it it's kind of a monumental task but um it's what i call a living natural history museum so if you go and visit you can actually see people working there uh doing paleontology right there right in yeah. person and the great thing about the mammoth site is it's also one of the biggest hirers of volunteers and interns who are undergraduates are interested in paleontology so a lot of the people that are significant in the field today have passed through the mammoth site wow. it's a great it's a great great museum and uh the people who run it are just so talented so i, I imagine you've You've been to the La Brea Tar Pits? I have been to the La Brea Tar Pits. What's that like? Oh, it's breathtaking. And, uh, you know, when I was there, I was actually lucky enough, lucky enough to have uh, one of Emily Lindsay's, which is the curator of the La Brea Tar Pits, one of her uh, staff, uh, one of her preparators actually showed me some of the stuff that they were actually preparing in the lab. And they showed me some of the collections. And the La Brea Tar Pits has preservation quality that is unreal. Now the crazy thing about those bones is some of them aren't even fossils. Some of them are still the biological material because it's a lot like the piece, uh, the peat bog moss, uh, the peat moss bogs in uh, Ireland that are that preserve it, or the mud that preserves the column of Venice. It's the same thing going on with the bones in the La Brea tar pits. So the information we can garner from these animals is even more significant than being able to find their bones anywhere else. It really is a unique place. They find California condors there. They find dire wolves there. They have an entire wall of dire wolves. They find, you know, saber-toothed cats like Smilodon californicus, which is named after California. And of course, and uh, 
they find short-faced bears. I mean, anything that's a famous Cenozoic mammal, it comes from the La Brea tar pits. And the cool thing about La Brea is, is all the bones are this beautiful jet black color. And so whenever you're at a museum and you see a cat skeleton, you know it's based on a La Brea skeleton if it's nice and jet black. Really? Mm -hmm. Beautiful preservation quality. We get really excited about the preservation of quality of fossils as okay, paleontologists. <laughs> yeah. What about what about the Midwest here? We're in the Midwest. Anything like big and I mean we have uh, woolly mammoth coming out of here, but yes. anything else said. So the mastodon at my natural history museum, which is the most complete a female mastodon ever found, was dug up by the University of Michigan in uh, in uh, Michigan, of course. But you find all sorts of crazy animals. In the Cleveland Shale, people like Lee Hall, who's now at the Museum of the Rockies, dug up um, Dunkleosis, which is a giant bone-crushing fish. Whoa. You know, yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild. It, its jaws look like scissors. It, it's absolutely insane. That's from uh, even before the Permian period. Uh, here in Chicago, you can find things like a Tully monster, which is just the weirdest Rick and Morty-esque fossil you'll ever see. It really just, it, it's just very strange. It has like a, has like a snout with a little yeah. mouth and it, it doesn't have any eyes and it's, it's just weird. It looks like a piece of fruit almost. It's very strange. You can find, uh... Lots of ancient buffalo bones out here. You can find bison antiquis, and you can buy, find bison occidentalis and bison latifrons out here. Of course, you can find mastodons out here. Uh, when you get into... Uh, so, unfortunately, the reason why there's not dinosaurs in this part of the country, which is probably what you're asking about... The glaciers? Is, yeah, it's because of the glaciation that occurred. So, what happens with glaciers is they just come and they, they crush off everything. And so people actually have, uh, you know, a theory that the Great Unconformity is actually caused by Snowball Earth, which was glaciers. The what? The Great what? The Great Unconformity, which is a bunch of a million, a uh, few billion years of uh, geologic history that's just missing. And that's that sound, when Earth that was like completely a, covered by glaciers. That sounds like an indie band name. The, the Great Unconvention? What is it? The Great... The Great Unconformity. I think it sounds like a great punk that's band. A, that's yeah. a great name. So, so you have all these years missing. So then, is the trade-off that we don't we don't get dinosaur fossils in the Midwest, but we get the Great Lakes out yeah. of it? So the cool thing about the Great Lakes is the archaeological significance of the Great Lakes is uh, very, very important to all of the Plains peoples. So originally, all of the Lakota and all of the Chippewa and you know all of those tribes from out west they all trace their ancestry back here to the Great Plains, really? uh, to the Great Lakes region. So around Minnesota, around the Illinois area, around the Michigan area. So what you lack in paleontology, you actually gain in the study of archeology. span People. Yeah. Interesting. There's some really significant roots out here. Wow. Awesome. What's the most recent biggest dinosaur discovery i imagine it's the spinosaurus so i'm a little hesitant to clap my hands every time i see a spinosaurus reconstruction come out 
Because Spinosaurus is getting reconstructed every year. It's literally become a meme among so paleontologists. No one, no one really knows what it looks like. And then well, it came there's out a lot of theories. In the water a little bit more. Everybody's or? debating what okay. Spinosaurus looks like, and you know, just like everything else, these questions will be answered with a bigger sample size. Now, yeah. the frustrating thing about trying to conduct uh, biology research with paleontology and ecology research with paleontology is because. Less than 1% of everything that's ever lived has been fossilized. And, uh, you know, a very, very, very small percentage of those fossils make up a diverse enough, um, you know, actually actual count for us to get, uh, you know, comprehensive data. And with things like, um, you know, large predatory animals that come from unstable regions of the world, it is difficult to get sample sizes yeah. expanded, but there's some amazing people who have been doing work in Egypt, uh, you know, female and male paleontologists. Uh, their names are escaping me right now. I wish I could say them, but uh, there's there's a lot of research coming out. Uh, one of my personal favorite, um, you know, pieces of work that's come out lately was uh, the discovery of the new titanosaur, uh, the new sauropod down in Patagonia. Tell, tell me more about that one. So this is the largest dinosaur that ever lived. I believe it's Argentinosaurus. And uh, Diego Pull at the American Museum of Natural History did a lot of the work with a institution, uh, I think they're based in Buenos Aires, and uh, they studied this animal and they excavated uh, all of its bones and uh, they did body mass regressions. And what they actually discovered is this was the largest land mammal, or not land mammal, largest land animal ever. 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 Yeah, this thing was like a walking um, city block, pretty much. And it was heavy and it was bulky and there must have been massive herds of these things all over the place. Patagonia during the early Cretaceous period must have been a fascinating place. Wow. Well, kind of wrapping up here, what are some favorite things you're looking forward to in the next five years in the work that you're doing? Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, presenting my research in uh, 2021 on the Hall's Cave Project. Uh, which is a uh, record of the last 22,000 years. Uh, hopefully, I'll be either presenting it at the American uh, Society of Mammalogy annual meeting or at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology annual meeting, God willing. Of course, let's hope that it's not canceled. So I'm excited for that, but really I'm excited to see what kind of research comes out of the uh, Karoo Basin of South Africa. And I'm also really excited to see uh, some of the new ecology research that's been doing uh, that's being done in the Hell Creek formation. So that's the late Cretaceous and uh, we're learning more and more about that and uh, I'm also really fascinated in hearing more research about the uh, Fort Union formation which is uh, a formation that represents the age directly after the KT mass extinction and the Denver Museum recently found uh, thousands uh, on that thousands but a, set, uh, a very large amount of uh, early mammal skulls really? in concretions in the Rocky Mountains from that age so I'm really excited to see what kind of uh, you know information that brings because as I stated at the beginning of the podcast I think uh, learning about how an earth heals from a mass extinction event is some of the most important data we can actually garner so awesome well Tim this yeah. is 
been such a treat. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down and chatting with me. Yeah, I had a blast. Uh, thanks for having me out here, man. We'll have to do this again soon. I, I You'll definitely be out there digging up fossils with Dude, me. That's that what I promise. I have, a, I have a 50 before 50 list, and one of them is to go on a go on a expedition yeah we'll go a place i i know a place where uh it's it's about two ranches away from where sue was found and we can go and dig up t-rex teeth yeah. oh oh yeah and t-rex shed their teeth like sharks so who knows maybe one of those could be sue's it's entirely possible what? so yeah we'll one, do that one last question i have do you do you own fossils and how many do you own um I don't really uh, have a personal fossil collection, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the ethical, um, an ethical way of managing commercial paleontology. I think, you know, with the current economic state of the country and one in three museums expected to close, I think there needs to be more collaboration between people on the public and private side of the spectrum. And I think there needs to be ethical guidelines set in place for the uh, sale, transfer, and excavation of fossils in the private market. Um, but I personally do not own any fossils. All talk of my fossils uh, are in museum collections. Talk so, more about that relationship. I read a good book, The Dinosaur Artist. It yeah. talks about this relationship between commercial so, and, and like public and, and how, you know, just talk about that yeah so Frank Garcia my boss is actually mentioned in the uh, dinosaur artist uh, he's in I believe chapter it's one of the early chapters but he was the guy who found the Lysi shell pit in Florida oh, so oh. he has always skirted the line between public and private oh and wait Frank Garcia yes a, Frank Garcia yeah, yeah that's he's him. like heavily mentioned in that book yeah he's heavily mentioned in that book and uh, you know there's a lot of political opinions and a lot of emotions on both sides uh, when it comes to the transference of fossils uh, I do not believe that it's ethical to sell a fossil that is a holotype which is or a uh, scientifically valuable fossil but when it comes to things like you know ammonites and uh, even uh, really common vertebrates like oreodonts, where you find thousands of these things, and we already have sample sizes that are sufficient to do any ecological research we could ever want or need. I think that is okay. I think there really needs to be a conversation about how to move forward together between those two sides. And in the future I see in paleontology, the future I want, uh, I would like to return to how it was when these great museums were built where they would send people out and you know it was aristocratic people who would uh, you know manage excavations and you know donate fossils to things like the Field Museum and the American Museum and you know there's also a lot of questions about how ethical that was so I think there needs to be a conversation about the ethics of creating fossils and I think guidelines uh, of selling fossils and I think there needs to be guidelines set in place but I don't think it's a bad thing to ever own a fossil because I think they are the most important uh, having a fossil is the most important way or the best way to understand the ancient world and I think every kid should have a fossil that's how I feel you know I love it, I love it. And I'll probably get heat for a little bit of this, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, th I feel like it's possible to coexist, uh, but there's people who don't share that opinion in, and, uh, establishment paleontology, so. I like, I would agree with you. I think 
the more collaboration in not just paleontology, but every field out there in the world, I think the world can only be a better place from it. Yeah, some of the best field collectors and some of the best field workers I've ever seen in my life have been commercial paleontologists. And some of the smartest and most talented and brilliant people I've ever had the pl uh, pleasure to work with have been academic paleontologists. And it would just be so nice to see both of those two skill sets, you know, benefit each other instead of, you know, go against each other. Right. Yeah. But I don't think dinosaurs uh, should be only for the rich either. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks for the conversation. What a, what a treat. Yeah, this has been a blast. I hope you guys all have a uh, wonderful rest of the summer. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Tim at DinoGuy1997. I hope the rest of your day is filled with childlike imagination and a willingness to explore your curiosity. Have a wonderful day.